Section eight of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph by Francis Sheridan. Volume one continued. August the twentieth. I have looked over what Patty has writ for the five last days. Upon my word, she's a very good journalist, as well as amanuensis, and she has given you to the full as good an account of matters and things as I could. My time passes rather more tolerably than I expected. The dean's family seem to have broken the solitary spell that hung over the house, and we have company, you see, every day. Mr. Arnold never fails. I always make him play. He is very obliging, and if he were not good-natured, I should tire him. August the 22nd. I have had a letter from Sir George. He mentions not Mr. Falkland. I, too, am endeavouring to forget him. When my mother goes to London, I will try to prevail on her to let me go down to Sydney Castle. I have no inclination to go to town unless to stay here. We are to have a concert tomorrow at Mr. Arnold's house. My lively good old dean touches the bass viol. His daughter sings prettily. I am to bear my part, too, so that we begin to grow a little sociable. August the 30th. Are you not tired of my Grimston journal, my Cecilia? Day after day rolls on in the same dull repetition. Lady Grimston, the Dean, and Mr. Arnold perpetually. There is no bearing this, you cry. Well, but here is a new personage arrived to diversify the scene a little. Lady Grimston's daughter, a sweet woman. But her mother does not seem fond of her. It amazes me, for she is perfectly amiable, both in temper and person. She is a widow of about eight-and-twenty. Lady Grimston appears to treat her with a distance very unmaternal, and the poor young woman seems so humbled that I pity her. She is come but on a visit, and we shall lose her in a week, for which I am very sorry, as I have taken a fancy to her. September the 1st. Poor Mrs. Vere, that is the name of Lady Grimston's daughter. I can now give you the cause of her mother's coldness to her. I had it from herself. She told me her little history this evening in the garden with a frankness that charmed me. How happy you are, dear Miss Biddulph, said she. You seem to be blessed with one of the tenderest of parents. I am indeed, I answered. She is one of the best of mothers and the best of women. She sighed, and a tear started into her eye. I too was happy once, said she, when my indulgent father lived. I hope, madam, Lady Grimston is to you what my good mother is to me. She shook her head. No, Miss Biddulph, it must be but too obvious to you that she is not. I should not have introduced the subject if the cold severity of her looks were not so apparent that you must have taken notice of them. My mother is undoubtedly a very good woman, and you may naturally suppose that my conduct has been such as to deserve her frowns. I will therefore tell you my melancholy, though short, story. It is now about twelve years since Mr. Vere paid his address to me. He was the eldest son of a gentleman of family and fortune who then lived in this country. I was about sixteen, 
and the darling of my father, who was perhaps the more indulgent to me, as he knew my mother's severity. Mr. Vere was but two years older than myself, and a childish courtship had gone on for some time between us before it was suspected by anybody, and to say the truth before I was well aware of the consequences myself. It happened that an elderly gentleman of a great estate just at that time saw and liked me, and directly made proposals to my mother, as she was very well known to hold the reins of government in her family. This offer, I suppose, was advantageous, for she immediately consulted my father upon it, or rather gave him to understand that she meant to dispose of her daughter in marriage. My father, who had no objection to the match, told her he was very well satisfied, provided I liked the gentleman, but said he hoped she would not think of putting any force on my inclinations. My eldest sister had been married some time before by my mother's sole authority, and quite contrary to her own liking. The marriage had not turned out happily, and my father was resolved not to have me sacrificed in the same way. My mother told him she was sorry he had such romantic notions as to think a girl of my age capable of having any ideas of preference for one man more than another, that she took it for granted I had never presumed to entertain a thought of any man as yet, and supposed her precepts had not been so far thrown away upon me as that I should let it enter into my head that anything but parental authority was to guide me in my choice. My father, from the gentleness of his nature, had been so accustomed to acquiesce that he made no other reply than to bid my mother use her discretion. He came directly to me, notwithstanding, and told me what had passed. It was then, for the first time, that I discovered I loved Mr. Vere. I burst into tears, and clinging round my father's neck, begged of him to save me from my mother's rigour. My gesture and words were too passionate for him not to perceive that there was something more at my heart than mere dislike of the old man. He charged me to deal sincerely. I loved him too well and was myself too frank to do otherwise. In short, I confessed my inclination for Mr. Vere and his affection for me. Though my kind father chid me gently for admitting a lover without his or my mother's approbation, yet at the same time he told me he would endeavour to dissuade her from prosecuting the other match. Though he could wish, he said, I would try to bring myself to accepting of it, adding he was afraid my mother would be much incensed by a denial. My mother was fond of grandeur, and would not like to have me marry anyone who could not make me at once mistress of a fine house and a fine equipage, which I knew I must not expect to be the case with Mr. Vere. His father had several children, and was very frugal in his temper. Besides, as he was but of the middle age, and of a very healthy constitution, his son's prospect of possessing the estate was to all a human appearance at a very great distance. These discouragements, however, did not hinder me from indulging my wishes. My father's tenderness was the foundation on which I built my hopes. I told Mr. Vere the designs of one parent and the kind condescension of the other, 
Emboldened by this information, he ventured to disclose his love to my father, begging his interest with my mother in his favour. He had a great kindness for the youth, and was so fond of me that he would readily have consented to my happiness if the fear of disobliging my mother had not checked him. He represented to her, in the mildest manner, the utter dislike I had expressed of the proposed match, and conjured her not to insist on it. My mother, unused to being controlled, was filled with resentment both against him and me. She said he encouraged me in my disobedience, and that if he did not unite his authority to hers, in order to compel me to marry the gentleman she approved of, it would make a total breach between them. My good father, who loved my mother exceedingly, was alarmed at this menace. Unwilling to come to extremities either with her or me, he was at a loss how to act. His paternal love at length prevailed, and he determined at all events to save me from the violence which he knew would be put upon my heart. My mother had never condescended to talk to me on the subject. She thought my immediate obedience ought to have followed the bare knowledge of her will. She forbade me her sight, and charged me never to appear before her, till I came with a determination to obey her. However severe this prohibition was, I yielded to it with the less reluctance, as my father's tender love made me amends for my mother's harshness. Perhaps, had she vouchsafed to reason a little with me, tempering her arguments with a motherly kindness, she would have found me as flexible as she could wish but the course she took had a very contrary effect. I thought myself persecuted, and that it was for the honour of my love to persevere. On the other hand, my father's secret indulgence encouraged me in the sentiments I entertained, and I now determined not only to refuse my old lover, but to have my young one. My mother had given me a stated time in which I was to come to a resolution, and if I did not, at the expiration of it, acquiesce, I was to be pronounced a reprobate, and to be no more considered as her child. In this emergency I had recourse to my father. I told him there was nothing which I was not ready to suffer, rather than marry the man I hated. My greatest affliction was the uneasiness I saw him endure on my account, for my mother reproached him daily with my obstinacy. My father said he thought the alternative offered by my mother was to be avoided, but in one way, and that was by marrying Mr. Vere. For, added he, when she finds you resolute in your refusal of her choice, not even my parental authority will be able to screen you from her severity, and your life will be made miserable without your father's being able to relieve you. On the other hand, when you are out of her house, she cannot distress you, nor prevent me from doing you the justice which I owe my child. Nay, possibly in time I may be able to work out a reconciliation between you, but she must not know that I was consenting to this marriage, lest an irreconcilable quarrel should ensue. 
I fell at my father's feet and embraced his knees for this tender and unexpected proof of his affection. Mr. Veer's father was no stranger to his son's attachment, and we were very sure he would readily come into the proposal which my father intended to me. The two parents had a meeting secretly, where all the terms of portion and settlement were speedily and privately adjusted. Mr. Veer, the father, who had been long intimate in our family, knew very well the necessity there was for keeping the secret. After this, my lover and I were to be married privately, without the knowledge seemingly of any one in either family excepting one of the Miss Veers, who was to be present, and when the time of my probation was expired, my father was to let my mother into the knowledge of this affair as a thing he had just discovered, and to pacify her anger as well as he could. Everything was conducted in the manner proposed. I was married with the utmost privacy, and continued in my father's house till the day arrived when I was to give my definitive answer. Unfortunately for me, my mother chose to receive it from my own mouth, and called me into her presence. I appeared before her trembling and terrified. I had not seen her for a fortnight, and I was in dread lest the discovery I had to make should banish me her sight perhaps for ever, unless my father might influence her in time to forgive me. She asked me with a stern brow what I had resolved on. I had not courage to make her any answer, but burst into tears. She repeated her question, and I could only reply, Madam, it is not in my power to obey you. She did not comprehend the meaning of my words, but imputing them to obstinacy, commanded me to leave the room and not to see her face till I came to a proper sense of my duty, at the same time ordering me into my chamber where I was to be locked up. I flew to my father and conjured him to let my mother know the truth at once, that I might be no longer subject to such harsh treatment, for I knew the being sent home to my husband would be the consequence of her being told that I had one. My poor father was almost afraid to undertake the task, though he had been the chief promoter of my marriage, and his authority ought to have given sanction to it. He ventured, however, to let her know that I had confessed to him what my fears of her immediate resentment would not suffer me to discover whilst I was in her presence, and what my aversion to the man she proposed to me, and the rigours I had been threatened with if I refused him, had driven me to. The rage my mother flew into was a little short of frenzy, and my father made haste to send me out of the house. Mr. Veer's whole family received me with great tenderness, but I was sorry at leaving my father, whose visits to me were made but seldom, and even those by stealth. My situation, though I was united to the man I loved and caressed by all his family, was far from being happy. 
my mother's inflexible temper was not to be wrought upon, notwithstanding my father did his utmost to prevail on her to see and to forgive me, and she carried her resentment so far that she told my father, unless he cut me off entirely in his will, she was determined to separate herself totally from him. This was an extremity he by no means expected she would have gone to. In a fit of sickness which had seized him a few years before, he had left me ten thousand pounds. Five of this he had secretly transferred to Mr. Vere on the day of my marriage, and had promised him to bequeath me five more at his death. In consequence of this disposition, he purposed making a new will, so that he the less scrupled giving my mother up the old one, with a promise of making another agreeable to her request. My mother's jointure was already settled on her. My eldest sister had received her portion, so that there was little bequeathed by this testament but my fortune and a few other small legacies. My mother tore the will with indignation, and not satisfied with my father's promise, insisted on his putting it into execution immediately. In short, his easy temper yielded to her importunities, and he had a will drawn up by her instructions, in which I was cut off with one shilling, and my intended fortune bequeathed to my eldest sister. My mother was made residuary legatee to everything that should remain after paying all the bequests. This would have amounted to a considerable sum, if the half of my portion, which was already paid without her knowledge, had not made such a diminution in the personal estate, that after paying my sister the whole of what was specified in the will, there was scarce anything likely to remain. Had my mother known this secret, she would not perhaps have been so ready to have made my father devise all my intended fortune to my sister. My father, who was aware of this, durst not, however, inform her at that juncture how much she hurt herself by forcing him to such measures. She insisted upon his leaving the whole of what he designed for me to my eldest sister, as well as convince him, she said, that she had no self-interested views as to be an example to other rebellious children. My father had no remedy on these occasions but a patient acquiescence. The will was made, and my mother herself would keep it. My father took an opportunity the same day to inform me what he had done, but assured me he would immediately make another will agreeable to his first intentions and leave it in the hands of a faithful friend. This was his design. But alas, he lived not to execute it. He was seized that night with a paralytic disorder, which at once deprived him of the use of his limbs and his speech. They who were about him believe he retained his senses, but he was not capable of making himself understood even by signs. Alarmed with this dismal account of my beloved father's situation, I flew to the house without considering my mother's displeasure. 
that I was not permitted to see him. I filled the house with my cries, but to no purpose. I had not the satisfaction of receiving even a farewell look from him, which was all he was capable of bestowing on me. He languished for several days in this melancholy condition, and then, in spite of the aid of physic, expired. The loss of this dear father so entirely took up my thoughts that I never reflected on the loss of the remaining part of my fortune. But it was not so with my father-in-law. There had been a settlement made on me in consequence of the fortune promised, though not equal to what it demanded, yet superior to the half which was paid. He relied on my father's word for the remainder, and had no doubt of its being secured to him, knowing his circumstances as well as his strict integrity, and that my sister had actually received the same fortune which I was promised. Mr. Vere had four daughters, and it was on this fortune he chiefly depended to provide for them. The news of my being cut off with a shilling exceedingly surprised, and exasperated him. Unluckily, I had not mentioned to him, nor even to my husband, the will which my father had been obliged to make. The assurances he gave me of immediately making another in my favour prevented me, as I thought it would only be a very severe proof of my mother's enmity to the family, which I could have wished to conceal from them especially as I did not imagine it would have affected me afterwards. Mr. Vere, the elder, was from home when my father died, and his business detained him for more than a month after his funeral was over. My husband, on this occasion, showed the tender and disinterested love he bore me. He affected to make as light as possible of his unexpected disappointment, but at the same time expressed his uneasiness, lest his father should carry matters to an extremity with my mother, from whom he knew we were to expect nothing by mild methods. It was now thought advisable that I should write to my mother to condole with her on my father's death, again to entreat her forgiveness of my fault, and, as some mitigation of it, to acknowledge that it was not only with my father's privity, but even with his consent and approbation that I had married. I wrote this letter in a strain of the utmost humility, without mentioning a word of my fortune, that I thought it would be time enough for me to do if I could prevail on my mother to see me, and would at all events come better from my husband or his father than from me. But I gained nothing by this, only some unkind reflections on my father's memory, and a message that since he thought proper to marry his daughter in a manner so highly disagreeable to her mother, he should have taken care of providing for her, as he could not expect a parent so disobliged as she had been would take any notice of me. My mother had been left sole executrix to my father's forced will, and she took care to put my sister and the other legatees into possession of what was bequeathed to them in a very short time after his decease. She found 
there was an unexpected deficiency in his personal fortune, insomuch that there was barely enough to pay his debts, and that her being left the residue, after the specified legacies were paid, amounted to nothing. On the contrary, had my father's just intentions taken place, in leaving me five thousand pounds, she would have come in for the other five, but the whole ten thousand now went to my sister. She was not long, however, at a loss to know how this came to pass. Mr. Vere determined to assert his own and his son's right, and being exceedingly provoked at my mother's behaviour, wrote to her immediately on his return home, and having informed her of the settlement made on me on account of the fortune already paid, and what was farther agreed on to be paid by my father, told her he expected that this promise should be punctually fulfilled. He said he knew she had it in her power to do this, and since it was by her contrivance I had been robbed of my just right, if honour and the duty of a parent would not induce her to make me proper amends, she must excuse him if he made use of such means as the laws allowed him, in order to compel her. Such a letter to a woman of my mother's temper met with such a reception as might be expected. She tore it before his messenger's face, and desired him to tell his master that, as what he had already obtained was by fraud, so he was at liberty to make use of force to recover the remainder, but with her consent he never should have a single shilling. This exasperating reply made my father-in-law directly commence a suit against her, in which the other legatees were made parties. The distress I felt on this occasion is scarce to be imagined. The breach was now so widened between my mother and my husband's family, that there remained not the least hope of it ever being closed. Mr. Vere unwillingly joined with his father in pursuit of these measures. He would, for my sake, much rather have yielded up his expectations than had supported them at the expense of my quiet. But his father's will, and justice to the rest of his family, compelled him to proceed, and deprived me of any pretence for interposing. The lawsuit was carried on with great acrimony on both sides, when an event happened that made me then, and has indeed ever since, look with indifference on everything in this life. It was the death of my husband. He was snatched from me by a violent fever before he reached his twentieth year. I will not pretend to describe my sufferings to you on this sad occasion. They were aggravated by my being near the time of lying in. Whatever affliction Mr. Vere felt for the death of his only son, it did not make him forgetful of what he owed his daughters, and he was resolved to carry on the lawsuit with the utmost vigour. You may suppose the house wherein I had lost my beloved husband appeared a dismal place to me, especially in my present situation. I thought, too, my father-in-law's looks began to grow colder to me than they used to be, and I begged I might have his permission to remove for a while. 
he did not oppose it, and I went at the pressing entreaties of your favourite, the good old Dean, to his house, where he and his lady behaved to me with more than parental tenderness. My health was in so declining a way that this worthy man, as I have since learned, made several applications to my mother to see me, but without success. At length the hour of my delivery arrived, and I was brought to bed of a dead female child. The estate, in case of Mr. Veers dying without issue, devolved on his sisters, and I was in hopes this circumstance, so favourable to the young ladies, would have induced their father to have been less rigorous in persisting in his claim. But in this I was deceived. He loved money, and was besides full of resentment against my mother. I thought, however, of an expedient, which I flattered myself might work upon him, and by good fortune it succeeded. Mr. Vere, though I had left his house, visited me constantly, and kept up a show of tenderness, which I am sure he had not in his heart. I told him one day, whilst I was still confined to my bed, that as I had now lost both my husband and my child, a very moderate income would be sufficient for me, and that as I valued my mother's peace of mind beyond my selfish considerations, I was very willing to give up half my jointure, provided he would drop his suit. Mr. Vere seemed surprised at the proposal. He said he wondered I could be so blind to my own interest, and that all he was doing was purely for my sake. I thanked him for his pretended friendship, but assured him he could serve me no way so effectually as by coming into the measure I proposed. Mr. Vere said I talked like a child, but he would consider of it. The following day he called on me again, and told me that to make me easy he was willing to come into my proposal, that he would have the proper instruments drawn up, by which I was to relinquish half my jointure, and he in consequence to give up all claim on my father's estate. I was much better pleased at this losing agreement than if I had acquired a large accession of fortune. Mr. Vere soon got the proper deeds ready, and they were executed in form. I now relapsed into an illness from which I was supposed to have been quite recovered, and my life was thought in great danger. I have since been told that Mr. Vere repented his agreement at that juncture, and told some of his friends that if he had not been so hasty, he should have had a chance of my jointure and my fortune too. I begged of the dean to go to my mother and use his last efforts on her to prevail with her to see and forgive me before I died. At the same time I sent her the release I had procured from Mr. Vere, which I knew was the most acceptable present I could make her. The dean urged the danger I was in, without it seeming to make much impression on her. I am willing to believe that she thought the dean exaggerated in his account of my illness. 
he owned to me himself that he was shocked to find her so obdurate. At length he took the paper out of his pocket, and presenting it to her, I am sorry, madame, said he, I cannot prevail with you to act like a parent or a Christian. Your daughter, I fear, will not survive her present malady, but she will have the comfort to consider that she has left nothing unattempted to obtain that forgiveness which you so cruelly deny her. I hope, Lady Grimston, your last hours may be as peaceful as hers, I trust, will be from this reflection. There, madame, she has, by that instrument, left you disengaged from a troublesome and vexatious lawsuit, which would, if pursued, infallibly turn out to your disadvantage. It was all she could do, and what few children used like her would have done. My mother, a good deal alarmed at the dean's manner of speaking, now examined the contents of the paper. She seemed affected, and called him back as he was just leaving the room. She told him she was not lost to the feelings of nature, and that if he thought her presence would contribute to ease my mind of the remorse it must needs labour under, she was not against seeing me. The good man, glad to find her in this yielding disposition, told her she could not too soon execute her intention, and pressed her to come to his house directly. She suffered him to put her into his coach, and he carried her home with him. The interview on my side was attended with tears of joy, tenderness, and contrition. My mother did not depart from her usual austerity. She gave me but her hand to kiss, and pronounced her forgiveness and her blessing in so languid a manner as greatly damped the fervour of my joy. She stayed with me not more than a quarter of an hour, and having talked of indifferent things without once so much as mentioning what I had done, she took a cold and formal leave. This interview, as little cordial as my mother's behaviour was to me, had so good an effect on me that I began perceptibly to mend from that hour. She sent, indeed, constantly to inquire how I did, but avoided coming, lest, as she said, she should meet with Mr. Vere, whom she never could forgive. As soon as I was in a condition to go abroad, I went to pay my duty to her. She received me with civility, but no tenderness, nor has she ever from that time made me the least recompense for what I have lost. Her permitting me to see her, she thinks sufficient amends. I did not choose to return to Mr. Vere's house, as I had only a polite, not a kind invitation. One of his daughters, she who had been present at my marriage, and who always had shown most affection towards me, was about this time married to a gentleman whose estate lay in another county. When the bride went home, she pressed me to go with her so warmly that I could not refuse her and during the time i stayed with her i received so many marks of tenderness from her that i resolved to settle in her neighbourhood and have now a little house near her 
where I have resided constantly ever since. I come once or twice a year to pay a visit to my mother, but my reception, as you may see, is always cold, and I seldom stay more than a few days. Old Mr. Vere is dead, and his daughters, who were co-heiresses to his estate, are all married, so that the family is entirely dispersed. But notwithstanding this, and the number of years that have passed over since my marriage, my mother cannot yet endure the name of the family, and always, as you may have observed, calls me by my maiden name. I was much affected at the story of the amiable Mrs. Vere. The sweet melancholy which predominates in her countenance shows that the spirits, when broken in the bud of youth, are hardly to be recovered. What a tyrant this Lady Grimston is! I did not admire her before, but I now absolutely dislike her. What a wife and a mother has she been, to a daughter and a husband who might have constituted the happiness of a woman of a different temper! And yet she passes for a wonderful good woman, and a pattern of all those virtues of a religion which meekness and forgiveness characterise. She is mistaken if she thinks that authority is necessary to Christianity. The most that my charity allows me to believe of such people is that they impose on themselves at a time when the most discerning perhaps think that they are endeavouring to impose on others. What an angel is my good mother, when compared to this her friend, whom her humility makes her look upon as her superior in virtue. I am very angry with Sir George, who in his resentment said to me once that she was like Lady Grimston. I then knew but little of that lady's character, or I should have reproved him for it. I conjured Mrs. Vere to make her visit longer than she had at first intended. She told me she would most gladly do it, but that it was a liberty she did not dare to take unless her mother asked her to prolong it, which, she said, she possibly might do in complacence to me. End of section 8